I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. My name's Dev Raga. This is My Millennium Money Professional. I'm your host, and this is part two of the series Getting Into Medical School. I've got a couple of guests who are co-founders of Mission Med. We've got Matt, who's actually a medical student at the moment, and we've got Jason, who's a practicing GP physician and also sub-specializing in allergy and cosmetic medicine. And he's gone through the whole process and they're business partners. And we don't have the third co-founder, which was Mukund. So hello, Mukund. I never got to meet you and he couldn't join us tonight. Now, We'll get sort of continue on in this episode. So let's get started. Now, if you have any specific questions or comments, don't hesitate to contact me on Twitter or on Facebook. And remember the three main aims of this channel, education, empowerment, and entertainment. Now, welcome back, Matt and Jason. This is part two. And again, really sticking to the theme about getting into medical school. Now, getting into medical school in Australia has traditionally been very, very competitive. And I remember doing some statistical sort of analysis at the time when I was a young medical student. And it turns out to actually get into medical school in Australia is very similar and very competitive as getting into medical school in Harvard or getting into medical school in Stanford or Oxford or Cambridge. So maybe I'll start with Jason first. Why is it so competitive? And do you think it's a supply problem in terms of there's not enough seats of medicine in Australia? Or do you think it's a demand problem where basically the demand for medical school places has risen significantly? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I think it's probably a mixture of both. I know that doctors in Australia Look, uh, from a financial point of view, from a job security point of view, I think we do pretty well comparatively to a lot of other countries out there. And I think being also first generation immigrants or like my parents were first generation uh, immigrants um, and me actually myself being a first generation immigrant, there was a lot of emphasis on finding a job that's secure, finding a job that pays well so that you can kind of build your future in a new country. I think that element has also caused an increase in demand for these kind of, or for medicine as a profession, really, because I, you know, Australia being a very highly immigrant, has a quite a high immigrant population as well, especially from countries where they, well, my parents didn't come from a very well, uh, high socioeconomic background. So definitely they encouraged their kids to go into fields where, they would succeed in the future. I guess in terms of supply, definitely, I mean, the demand definitely exceeds the supplies, given that really you have so many students applying for medicine through the UCAT, and then that has to be cut down in the interview process, and then finally the offer process. So only if you look in the statistics, only really about one out of three, one out of four students who actually get to the interview process actually make it into medicine. So it is very competitive indeed, and it does look like it's getting more competitive as the years have progressed. So I guess that's my thoughts on it. 
at its current state. What about you, Matt? Why do you think it's so competitive? I mean, you're actually a medical student, so you'd be thinking about your entrance process and what you had to do to get in. And do you think it's a supply problem or do you think it's a demand problem? I've definitely thought about this um, a lot, actually. And look, I think that certainly there is a lot of culture, particularly around selective schools specifically, where certain careers are considered almost default in a sense, those being things like medicine, law, finance, so on and so forth. And I would say that those careers are largely selected, as Jason mentioned, because they provide a certain set of traits which align well with the things that people look for in a job. For instance, you know, security, a decent income, ability to raise a family, so on and so forth. So I'd say it's def- there's definitely demand. And, and like Jason said, the demand exceeds the supply. However, there's something, and look, I'm not going to harp on about the supply problem, but I think there's an interesting point to be made that in Australia, we actually do have a GP shortage. And so that's part of the reason why the Australian government has been kind of really pushing, um, starting a lot of new medical schools. I mean, most recently, I think they did start a new medical school. I think it was CQU that was a new one. So, so we're definitely looking to train more medical professionals in particular specialties like general practice. And so I find that mechanic kind of interesting. That's an interesting sort of um, take on that. And and Jason did mention about, I mean, his background being, you know, his parents being first generation immigrants. Can I ask, Matt, is it the same story in your family? Are your parents from overseas coming in and kind of really focusing on your studies and trying to get you to a profession where there's some job security in the future? Absolutely. I think um, it was definitely part of the experience of growing up that uh, healthcare in general was something that as a field was particularly of interest in the household. That being said, though, my dad came from more of an engineering background. And so that's why I've always been interested in in programming and code as well. And I think I've found a very nice way to combine um, two passions I have. So I'm actually quite happy where I've sort of ended up in this particular situation. And also sticking to that theme then, And again, you're a medical student at Sydney University. I mean, how many medical students are there at Sydney Uni? What's the number there like? Yeah, um, this year is actually a particularly large cohort. I think there's 300 people in my cohort at the moment and people from very diverse backgrounds. Like I think I met um, a father of four kids who was very interesting to talk to. And then some of my other friends who have come from undergraduate with me, some who had done computer science in undergrad, some who'd even worked, worked in sort of venture capital Yeah, lots of different people going into the medical degree now. How interesting. And in terms of the, obviously, you know, I'm Australian as any other Australian, but my ethnicity is of Indian background. What's the multiculturalism like in medical school at Sydney University? Does that reflect the diversity that we have in the general population? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I actually find it lovely that in uh, the UCID postgrad program, we have quite diverse cohort and very, uh, lots of different cultures. And it's, very interesting to learn about how different cultures approach um, medicine in slightly different ways and the views they have because we we have all in-person lectures and forums now post-COVID, which is amazing. And you get to hear some very interesting perspectives from different people, even international students as well. A lot of them from Canada, from the US, from uh, Hong Kong and, and lots of other countries. That's fantastic. That's actually very pleasing to hear. And I think that's the way I would see the you know, medical community is we're a very diverse community, healthcare sector in especially. And it's nice to know that the entrance process is also keeping with that diversity. Now sticking to 
more of a money topic, right? I mean, back to you, Jason, you did mention that the incomes of doctors in general on average are higher than non-doctors and there's no beating around the bush. We do generally well. We do have some challenges in that, um, particularly with what's happening in the healthcare industry across the board uh, in Australia, particularly in the field of general practice. But generally speaking, we do reasonably well. Personally, Jason, do you invest and what sort of principles do you have? Any tips for your GP cohort that's listening? So I was actually one of the original listeners of Devraga when he started his podcast. So I definitely have taken some right, board, okay. like on, on board some of your advice, uh, Dev. So I definitely appreciate that. Thank you very much. So definitely been investing in ETFs, uh, managed funds the last couple of years. So I dibbled and dabbled a bit in, I think uh, it was called Raise, but now they've rebranded to Acorns. I've also invested a little bit in Spaceship and now I've kind of moved to more ETFs and uh, managed funds now. Also recently, uh, I mean, you know, I invest my time and also a bit of money in, into my businesses. So I do part own my GP clinic, also part own uh, or co-founded Mission Med. I've now kind of started looking into startups and doing a little bit of angel investing. Given my work in the health tech field, I thought that potentially there could be some, uh, you know, fingers crossed unicorns in, 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 the, in the making, but we'll have to see how that turns out um, or it could eventuate to dust, who knows? Uh, so, and also a little bit of property investing as well uh, because the property market in Australia, you know, we, we have a very stable economy. Our property markets are very hot, especially in Sydney, but also in other states, you know, there's there's a lot of, I guess, stability in, in the property market as opposed to uh, other investment types. So definitely have a little bit of investment there as well. So that's how I invest my money currently. And I also forgot to mention, make sure you invest in yourself as well. So doing definitely doing a lot of education courses uh, to upskill, uh, especially in my practice as a subspecialist as well. Well, that's interesting. I mean, income diversity, you've got your hands in all sorts of pies there. I mean, you're, you're a GP clinic owner, you're a practicing physician, subspecialist in general practice. You've got various businesses and now you're going into angel investing, plus you've got the ETF side and plus you've got the property side. So I think that's ultimate diversification. I have to say, I don't own any big companies. I'm sort of sole owner of an education company on the side, which doesn't really make much money. But uh, that's really fascinating. Now, what about you, Matt? I mean, what do you do? Do you work at the moment as a med student? I mean, how do you make ends meet in terms of um, income and expenses? Or do you live with family? Tell us a little bit about your uh, story about that. I uh, still uh, live with my parents at the moment because they've been nice enough to kind of let me stay. And uh, before I started medical school, I did work part-time. Uh, I was a tutor uh, for physics at um, a coaching center, which I absolutely loved. Um, and I also worked in a health, care, health tech startup for about a year or so. Uh, and that was extremely rewarding and very, very educational for me. In terms of like how I invest my money, um, I mostly just do ETFs. It's something that I uh, can just set and forget. I think I would say my father probably does more <laughs> share trade investing than I do. Um, so uh, definitely don't do too much in that place because I've got my hands full with Mission Med and a bunch of other things. Right. That's interesting. And look, it's it's all about the principles, isn't it? I mean, what I'm trying to convey to the med students uh, that may be listening or even aspiring year 10, year 11, year 12 students or even junior doctors is, yes, it's important to focus on your career 
and yourself, but also as the money comes in, make sure you just pay a little bit of attention because you'd be surprised how many doctors that I speak to that are in their 40s, 50s, and sometimes early 60s who just haven't put that effort in. And it's lots of regret when they get 10, 20, 30 years down the line and, and sort of a lot of regret about where their money went. And life happens and it's actually quite easy to lose perspective of time. And then 20 years down the track, you're a um, physician or surgeon or a GP specialist and all of a sudden you just don't have that net worth that you probably should have given the amount of income that we generate as doctors. So that that's interesting. Now let's talk a little bit about scholarships. Maybe Jason, start off with you. Is there much scholarships for medical school in Australia? Because this is a huge topic in North America. There's a lot of scholarships for all sorts of universities, all sorts of medical schools, all sorts of non-medical courses like engineering and law school. What about in Australia? Is there much available? There are definitely scholarships available and it varies between different universities. I can't say that I'm across the board on all of them, but if you go to each university website, you can definitely do a search and you can search for individual scholarships. So it may not be for medicine in particular. It may be for potentially your, your kind of socioeconomic situation. I know that there are kind of scholarships to help those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. There are also scholarships with, you know, other kind of uh, caveats attached. I, I'm sure Matt has looked into this a little bit more than me. So potentially he could elaborate a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Would love to. Um, look, I think uh, when I was applying, I did a very, very rigorous and thorough search through scholarships. <laughs> and uh, I'd say there's actually surprisingly few scholarships that really apply to medicine, first of all. So most scholarships you will find in Australia tend to apply more to degrees and they have this thing which says exception medicine. But that is for applicants who are not uh, disadvantaged. So for applicants who are in some sort of socioeconomic disadvantage, or they might be rural or regional, or they might be from Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander heritage, then uh, in that situation, there are plenty of scholarships available, rightfully so. Now, for students who do not fall under those categories, there are also academic-based scholarships, some of them which require you to uh, achieve an ATAR or equivalent of 99.90, some of them which require an ATAR equivalent of 99.95. Um, and those, I believe, UNSW has a Cientia scholarship, and I think UCID has the Chancellor's scholarship, and a bunch of other universities like Melbourne, um, Monash also have Chancellor's scholarships as well. So there's definitely those out there uh, as long as you look. So I think that's probably what I'd say on that. Sounds like there's no central place where, you know, aspiring students can actually do their research. Sounds like, Matt, you had to go to individual sites and sort of collate that information. Is that right? Definitely. It's very much a self-driven sort of search for that information. There, there might be websites that collate that information now. Uh, there certainly wasn't when I was applying. And so I really had to go to different websites and find it for myself. And when I was applying for medical school back in the day, I found the same thing. A lot of these scholarships had this exception that doesn't include medical school, which is very, very strange in Australia. Uh, and of course, they, they do have scholarships for dis people of disadvantage, financial disadvantage or social disadvantage. But in terms of academic excellence, um, there doesn't seem to be much out there. Now, sticking with you, Matt, HEX or help debt do you know what, how much are you paying now? I mean, when I say paying, you're probably paying up front or maybe afterwards. What is the cost to you to do medical school in Australia on a per year basis? Yeah, it, look, it, it's going to depend 
student to student, but I'm currently in something called a Commonwealth supported place, which means that the large part of my education fee uh, is covered by the Australian government and and thank God for that. And so as a result, I only pay a contribution amount, which is about $12,000 a year. And then with that $12,000 a year, I can put that on a hex loan, which allows me to pay back that money later on down the track after I either decide to pay it back or I'm above a certain um, income threshold. No, I was going to say 12000 a year. Now, when I did medical school, it was close to 6000 a year. So, that's doubled. And what you're saying is it's 12000 multiplied by four or five years. So, you're looking at really you know, fifty to dollars to $70,000 debt by the time you finish medical school. Whereas just 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, you're looking at about a thirty to $40,000 debt when you graduate medical school. So that's interesting. I didn't realize it was that expensive. Probably has risen, um, perhaps due to maybe more demand and also because of inflation in general. And look, I certainly don't envy international students who have to pay far more than that. You know, I think international students pay something like seventy dollars to $80,000 a year, which is uh, substantially more because they aren't Commonwealth supported. Okay. So that's, again, significant costs. That's per year plus their boarding, plus their cost of living, et cetera. Is there a way that Australian citizens and residents can actually pay medical school, which is not really Commonwealth supported, like so-called full fee paying medical school places? Matt, is, is there such an avenue? Because other countries have that. Do you know much about that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I believe there are a couple of universities that offer medical places for full fee paying students, as you mentioned. Um, one of those universities, for instance, being Bond University. And the yearly amount is, is quite similar to how much an international student would pay, but that allows um, Australians to go through the medical school, not necessarily having a CSP or Commonwealth supported place, but still able to go through the medical school process if getting into or uh, getting a CSP um, proves to be a bit more difficult. And does that mean that the students that go through that process where they just pay, I assume they still have to write the UCAT and I assume they still have to have an interview if the university has an interview process and I assume they still have to do year 12. It's not as if that they can, you know, get into these medical schools without actually having decent marks and not doing well in UCAT and stuff. Am I right? Absolutely. Um, they, they work as hard as everyone else to get into the medical school. Their entrance criteria is quite stringent. Uh, in fact, they go through psychometric testing, which is something that not other universities that do CSPs don't necessarily have, which I think is actually quite interesting that they do that. So back to you, Jason, you've gone through medical school. And can I ask, were you CSP funded? Were you Commonwealth supported place or? Yeah. So yeah, I also managed to get a Commonwealth supported place. I think my fee was about $10,000 per year from memory. And you know, that's four or five years. So you're looking at about 50 grand when you graduate. And here you are as a GP specialist. Is it worth it? I mean, 50 grand a year as debt when you graduate is quite significant. It's too late for Matt now. He's he's well and truly into, <laughs> into medical school, but I'm an aspiring student listening to this podcast. Is that something I should be worried about? Look, uh, yeah, again, that's a very good question. I think from my perspective, I knew the income earning potential of a doctor later on. So I think 50 grand, probably not so much. But if you extrapolated that, if I was paying a full fee place, I think that's when you have to start to question whether it becomes worth it for you. Because 
I think 50 grand is still quite reasonable to pay off. I believe I paid off my hex last year, but that was a pretty hefty tax bill. But when you're looking into the 200 or 300,000 mark, you know, from purely from a return on investment point of view, potentially it may not be as worth it. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's my perspective. And I guess, you, you know, you have to look at it from many different perspectives. Like you're not really just looking at it from, a, I mean, if you're really looking at it from a financial perspective, that could be a little bit different. But if you also look at it from a job satisfaction perspective or an interest perspective or a passion perspective, then that could be that that may not really affect your decision to pursue medicine despite the hefty cost of it all. Now, Matt, are you worried? I mean, 12,000 a year by the time you graduate, I assume you've got about 50 to 60 to 70 thousand dollars in debt. What are your thoughts about all this? And look, Jason put it really well. I think most people would say that if you looked at a medical degree as a financial investment, you would be a very poor investment manager in general. <laughs> there are many other jobs, I think, that pay far better for the amount of effort and hell you put yourself through. But I think it's very important not to discount the field and the satisfaction you get out of the job. And look, I'm not going to claim here that I have actually worked in a hospital for a very long time. However, I knew that healthcare is an industry that I really want to be a part of. And partially that's driven by the fact that, you know, my mother has uh, prediabetes, you know, it's something that I care about. And so I think the cost is, it's, it's part of the decision making, but it's not an incredibly large element of my decision. A large part of my decision is driven more around what do I want to do with my life? What do I, what's the legacy I want to leave when I um, leave this earth? And um, what do I, what, what is a type of knowledge that I'm interested in? I had many, you know, chances where I could have just dipped into quantitative trading because I didn't data science degree, or I could have gone into insurance and did an actuarial thing and made, you know, a stack of cash and then retired. But I think I wouldn't have gotten the same sense of satisfaction and, and I really enjoy what I learn. So that has played a big part in my decision. That's a very good answer. It's a very interesting answer. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to finish off this episode, talk a little bit about private school versus public school, selective school versus non-selective school. And then we'll finish up with some final wisdom from Matt and Jason. And if you're interested in quantitative analysis and qualitative analysis, I do have an episode coming up. Hopefully, maybe it's already been released by the time this episode goes live, but I do have episodes on uh, uh, a technical analysis and fundamental analysis as well that's already been published. So uh, stay tuned for that. If not, you've already probably listened to it. So we'll be right back after this break. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, welcome back. Just a couple more questions. We're with Matt and Jason from Mission Med, who which is a business that helps students prepare for the entrance process for medical school, mainly undergraduate. Controversial topic, and I'll start with Jason. There's a lot of sort of, you know, debate online, particularly when it comes to financial advice. Is private school actually worth it? Or should we just send our kids to public school? Or is a selective school worth it? Now, I'm going to twist that a little bit and focus on medical school in general, What's your experience? Did you go to a private school in order to be able to do postgraduate medicine and set yourself up? What's your thought about all this debate about private and public and selective school with particular reference to getting into medical school? Yeah, so um, I myself, so I was actually a public school student. So like I talked about earlier how my parents were first generation immigrants. Uh, They didn't have a lot of money to put me through private school. So I ended up going to a public school out in the West. Wasn't the, necessarily the best environment, but I guess I was very lucky that my parents did place quite a lot of emphasis on academic achievement and actually pushed me to excel in that. And I ended up getting to OC class, which is opportunity class. And then from that, I managed to get into a selective school, which was Balkham Hills High School, which is generally ranked quite well in the state. So I was very fortunate to have being given that opportunity. And I think being in an environment where academics was emphasized definitely did help me push myself beyond what I thought was possible. And I guess that environment also helped uh, foster uh, my love for learning. So definitely, I think selective schools do have that environment where um, academic excellence is looked favorably upon. I guess from a perspective my perspective on private schools, I think there's a lot of private schools that also have that culture. It does depend on which private school you do attend. But for example, you know, I know that Sydney Grammar, again, they do extremely well in the HSC and they're usually ranked quite highly uh, in terms of high schools. But also I think private schools generally offer more co-curricular activities. So they allow their students to kind of engage in activities that I don't think are generally available to public school students. So I think from that perspective, I think private school is quite useful because it really helps develop those social or communication skills or interpersonal skills that you might require for the purpose of the interview. So I think that there's no hard and fast rule to say which one is better than the other. Um, They definitely both have their pros and cons. And I think, you know, private schools, you know, one of the cons being that it is quite expensive, but Definitely, I think if you have the if the ability to put your child through a private school, I don't think that's a necessarily a bad thing. And what about when you went to medical school? Did you find that, especially in postgrad, you went to postgrad med school, did you find that most of your peers were from private school? I mean, that seems to be the general sort of theme that I get from online forums and Facebook, where the is is it a myth that most of medical school is actually filled with private school students. Uh, Jason, is that your experience when you went to med school? Yeah, so I guess from my experience, we actually didn't really, 
ask a lot of uh, a lot of I think my colleagues or um, my classmates. I, I didn't really ask what school they graduated from because I think um, after working and after graduating another another degree, that's kind of what the questions were. But uh, from my perspective, I you know I, I don't know in terms of postgraduate program, like in terms of the postgraduate medical program, whether a lot of my colleagues were from private schools, but I guess from my experience as a mentor for undergraduate students, I can definitely say that I definitely see a lot more actually selective school students coming through into the undergraduate medical programs uh, compared to private school students. That has been my experience, yes. Right. Now, Matt, what about your experience? I mean, did you go to a private school? Did you go to a selective school or a public school? I actually went to uh, James Roos, um, which is a nice agricultural high school in Carlingford. And uh, it was lovely experience. And I think once I went into medical school and also uh, the types of people I was around, I noticed that most people also came from uh, similarly, either selective or public schools. There were a few from private schools, but not definitely not as pronounced as um, one might think. It's certainly not that they were the majority. And look, this might also stem from the fact that there are less private schools than public schools in general. So perhaps if you were to break it up proportion-wise, you know, proportion contribution from a private school, maybe you would see a larger number of students per school from a private school, but that's getting into the semantics of it. In general, no, is the answer. Interesting, yeah. I don't know whether there's any official data on this, and it'd be interesting, you know, for people to publish, you know, data on this. It doesn't have to be about medical school; it can be about any sort of school. Or I'll just be I'd be very, very interested to find out. And I guess, look, I mean, here, here's my take. My, ta- I mean, I went to public school. Shout out to public schools in Adelaide. And eleven of my peers are now doctors from that same school. Now it turns out that that particular school did well in high school. It was relatively academic. We were generally pretty good at sport as well. It wasn't a selective school. Selective schools in Adelaide weren't really a thing when I uh, went um, to high school there. Certainly is a major thing in Melbourne and Sydney, I notice. I suppose in my cohort of medical school, yeah, a lot of them did come from private school. I don't know if there's enough data to support that if you went to private school, you're more likely to get into medical school. But as Jason did allude to, you do have a little bit more opportunity in terms of extracurricular activities and co-curricular activities. The facilities are definitely better. And it also depends on which suburb that you go to your public school or private school, because in Melbourne, it really depends. Whereas in other cities like in Adelaide, it kind of didn't really matter when I was growing up, whether you went to private school or public school. You know, the, the facilities that I that I had in my public school was actually very, very good. But um, yeah, it, it certainly is something that comes up all the time. And certainly anecdotally, there's a fair bit of evidence to suggest that proportionately, there may be more students in medical school from private schools, but we don't really have that hard data to prove or disprove that. So that's that's sort of an interesting sort of topic. Now, we're just going to wrap up and have some final wisdom questions from, uh, from myself to Matt and Jason. And I'll start with Matt for this one. When do you think that students, if they really want to do medical school, when should they start thinking about it? When should they start preparing for it? Because it sounds like it's not as if you just rock up to a UCAT exam and rock up to an interview process and blitz it. I'm sure there are some students who do that. But it sounds like you need to put a fair bit of thought and effort 
in terms of planning your entrance process. So could you talk a little bit about when you started preparing for it at what year level? And is that something that you would recommend that other students do as well? Um, I'd love to talk about that, actually. Um, I give this advice to uh, my students all the time. I personally think that preparation should begin around the beginning of year 11. Now, when I say preparation, I don't mean explicitly studying for exams very you know, rigorously and, and going through programs and whatnot. I mean more in terms of a, a mental kind of preparation. So I think going back to the three aspects of preparation, which are the extracurricular repertoire, the UCAT and the ATAR, right? Or VCE or whatever that might be in in the particular state that you're in. I think the most important thing you can do when you're younger in year 10 and year 11 is extracurriculars. And I cannot stress this enough. Please get involved as much as possible, whether it's student leadership, where it's extracurricular activities outside sports, representative sports or club sports, volunteering at different centers like in um, nursing homes or, you know, homeless shelters and stuff like that. These are absolutely crucial to having deep and meaningful experiences that you can actually discuss and speak about during your interview and also just building yourself as a character, as a human being in general. Look, I can't tell you how often I've seen people discount extracurricular involvement in general and then struggle to explain their life outside of academics during the actual interview. So that's probably the first point I'd make. And then the second point I'd make is for early birds, UCAT preparation should really begin around July in year 11 to give you at least a year to prepare because the test is sat in year 12 uh, in June to July. And the reason why I say that is because UCAT is incredibly competitive. The scores keep rising each year, the cutoff for 99 percentile. So really, you need at least a year to get used to the test. So that's what I'd say on the UCAT side. And then finally, on the ATAR side, I'd say, look, take year 11 seriously. A lot of people don't, but it's a very, very important opportunity for you to find out what learning style works for you. I wasn't very special in year 11. I didn't perform particularly well, but I did figure out how I made content stick in my head. And that was from first principles learning. I understood the why I never accepted just memorizing something. And that worked, you know, that worked really well for me. Um, In year 12, uh, that's when it started to matter. And in year 12, I state ranked both physics and chemistry. So clearly something worked. So look, I think that's probably generally my advice across those three aspects of the medical entrance process. And hopefully people find some of that useful. And just sticking with the undergrad process here, Matt, uh, in terms of the three pillars, which is the year 12, the UCAT exam, and also the interview, do they sort of have a weightage on that? Do they say that um, year 12s are weighted this way? How important is a very good year 12 mark as opposed to a very good UCAT mark as opposed to an interview mark? I mean, interviews, obviously, the last sort of stepping stone prior to med school. What's your thoughts on that? That's an excellent question. And it varies between universities, which is what makes the application process so complicated. In UNSW, UCAT interviews and ATARs are weighted evenly, 33%, uh, 33.33% each, right? In some other universities, the UCAT and the ATAR are only used as thresholds upon which the only thing that then determines whether you get a medical offer or not becomes 100% the interview. And then in some universities, there is no interview and it's just a UCAT and an ATAR. So it really depends on the university, which is why I always suggest to people that you should treat all three of those things with equal importance 
and not none of them should be a second thought. Right. So, so in terms of those weightages, do the universities publish that? Is it a transparent process or do you just happen to know these on a ballpark figure because you're on the inside sort of teaching people how to get into medical school? Is that transparent, that weightage? For the large part, it is. If you, You'll find that if you Google much of the medical schools and find their internal document documentation that they publish on the website, they certainly don't make it very easy to find. But if you scroll through the PDF documents they usually have introducing their medical program, which I think students should be looking at anyways, given that they're going to be dedicating the next five or six years and spending a significant amount of cash um, on the actual program. But regardless, if you're looking through those PDFs that they usually have on the website, you'll find that they do publish their percentages of what they use um, from your ATAR, UCAT and your interview. Some medical schools don't, but for the most part, they do. If you're a medical school dean listening in on this, I think this sort of information should be transparent. I think all of this needs to be put out there so people know exactly what they're dealing with. One of the frustrations that I had when I was, you know, applying for medical school was none of it was transparent. I had no idea how much UMAT was weighted. I had no idea how much interviews were weighted. I had no idea about year 12 weightages. So we need more transparency in this space so that we make the entrance process as equitable as possible. I think that's really, really important. Now moving to Jason about the graduate entry process. What do you think, Jason, what should people focus on? Obviously, year 12, not really that important. You mentioned about the GPA, you mentioned about the interview, and you mentioned about the GAMSAT. Is it also equally weighted? Or again, is it university dependent? Yeah. So again, the tricky thing is it is university dependent. Um, and in fact, some universities also weight the portfolio or, or an application as well. So definitely you need to be concentrating on all, all three aspects. And I think going back to Matt's point about finding a learning style and learn and find, actually developing that and actually knowing how best to kind of study is probably going to take you a lot further in terms of doing well for the GPA GAMSAT as well. Yeah, so, so I, I guess it's, it's actually quite similar to the undergraduate process in the sense that these uh, three components are all used or certain parts of those three components are used for uh, the final interview uh, medical school offer. Right. Okay. And look, it, it sounds like medical school entrance process is a journey. It's not just one thing. It's, it's, I mean, most of the other university courses out there, most of the other, you know, non-university diplomas and all that sort of stuff out there, they may just focus on one thing and that could be just your year 12 mark. They may just focus on one thing that may be your interview. But with medical school, it's always been a journey. It's multiple assessment points. They're not just looking at one thing. They're looking at you as an individual. They're looking at your academics. They're looking at your interview performance. They're looking at your extracurricular activities, your applications, your portfolios. So I think that one of the biggest learning points that I've had from this episode, and it's been a long time since I got into medical school, is that it's just not a one-hit wonder. You need to be consistent. And as Matt mentioned, that you need to think about this. You need to analyze it right from year 11, maybe even year 10, and not just rock up to year 12 and then go, oh, you know what? I'll just apply for medical school because you know it might be a little too late. Now, having said that, let me put a caveat on this, right? The caveat is you don't need to get into medical school the first time you apply. I think that's really, really important. There's an incredible amount of pressure in communities out there who are constantly pushing their children 
to do medical school. And let me be very, very clear. It's okay to do medical school later in life. As Jason said, as Matt said, there are a lot of people out there who do other careers, nursing, physio, allied health, pharmacy, and then they go on to do medical school. In fact, I know a couple of architects that have gone on and did medical school at a later time. So one of the things we have to be very careful about is just applying too much pressure to the children to really focus on trying to get into medical school. At the same time, we need to be able to shape them. We need to be able to guide them. And if they're interested in health sciences, I think they should go for it. And I think that's really, really important that people don't lose sight of the fact that if you don't get in after year 12, that's fine. Do what you can, do what you love, and then there'll be other options. There'll be other opportunities And you may circle around and come back and say, you know what, I'm going to give postgraduate entry a bit of a crack. So that's completely fine. Now, Matt, you've got the ears of thousands and thousands of listeners, mostly doctors, but also lots of medical students. I know they discuss the Dev Ragup sort of podcast and medstudentsonline.com.au. And, you know, we have a lot of nurses who may be thinking about doing postgraduate medicine. We have a lot of physios and a lot of paramedics, for example, and also a lot of non-doctors that are may have children that want to get into med school or may themselves want to get at med school. What is your advice to them about any sort of final tips about getting into medical school? I think the message I want to leave with people is that developing lateral skill sets is absolutely crucial to having a great time in medical school, getting into medical school and your career after medical school. I have not regretted a single day by doing computer science, data science related content um, prior to doing medical school, because it's just given me a completely different perspective on the whole process of dealing with patients, how we make decisions, so on and so forth. And so for those who are coming from different backgrounds, your different background, your lateral skill set is an asset Um, not a liability. And Mm. for those who are coming from high school, think really carefully about why you want to go into medical school right now. And if there's something else that you're interested in that you really want to pursue, know that the postgrad pathway is always available and there's always time to pursue another separate career and then come back to it. And that career will still be very useful in your actual medical career. So that's probably the message I'd leave. Right. Yeah. Great feedback there. Jason, any sort of thoughts on that? I mean, anything else that you could add or your experience of now being a doctor and actually practicing and seeing patients and you've gone through the whole rigmarole of getting into medical school post-grad? Yeah, definitely. I would say always always be hungry, you know, um, I, you know, push yourself, go beyond your limits, pursue other interests if you do have them. Like when I entered medical school, I guess I didn't have that many interests. So I thought that was the only real pathway for me. But after going through medical school, actually being a doctor, I realized actually I have an interest in business. And now I decided to kind of pursue that pathway a little bit more than my clinical practice. So just be mindful of that. And I think don't don't discount those things because, you know, going through the whole pathway and going through everything that I've gone through, I don't necessarily think I would regret that because I don't think my decision 
or what I'm doing today may have eventuated if I didn't go through that pathway and wasn't and, and I wasn't given those opportunities. So I was very fortunate to be given the opportunity to work together to open a clinic, uh, very fortunate to be given the opportunity to work in a health tech startup. And those opportunities all kind of happened because I just put myself out there and I, you know, talk to people and network with other people as well. So definitely don't discount those things when you're you know, apply for medical school. And the other thing that I'll probably say is don't give up too easily. There's been many cases where I've seen students not succeed the first time. I mean, certainly for me, I didn't succeed on my first try. And I had to go through a period of self-reflection and introspection and actually figure out what I was lacking and focus on those aspects when I applied the second time. And that's when I got in the second time. So don't feel like if you don't make it the first time, that's it. Like Dev has said, really look deep inside and have a think about what happened, what you could do better and apply those principles uh, to your everyday life and reapply next time. Yeah, no worries. Wise words from Matt and also Jason. So thanks guys for, for coming on the podcast and really sharing your thoughts and also your experiences on the process of med school entry and the selection process and Jason for you working as a doctor now gone through all of the process as a postgraduate candidate. We'll sort of leave it at there and um, the business name is Mission Med. If anyone's interested in learning about, you know, medical school entrance, uh, reach out to these guys. I'll put a link in the show notes. And Matt, if you've got a link for that book, uh, I don't know if that's still relevant. Let me know. I'll put a link in the show notes. And till next time, Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or any of the podcasting platforms you may be using. In fact, just leave five-star reviews on all of the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review because I think when you do that, a lot of people read it and they spread the message and we put a lot of thought and effort into these episodes. And learn about how to get into medical school, learn about how to get into health sciences, learn about how to get into engineering or law school. I think planning and preparing is really, really important. And of course, until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast and Glenn James are authorised representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services licence 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 